Get Ahead. Written and narrated by Jason Wallstrom. Chapter 3 Clifford decided that it was time to stick his head up and take a peek to see if there were any dead ones left, hopeful that the mass of walking corpses had already passed. There were a few stragglers left. A dead woman in a house dress, slowly moving ahead in a hypnotic swaying motion. There was also a short, dumpy-looking figure wearing a brown long coat. Clifford couldn't tell if it was male or female. Not that it mattered. It looked like they were a good distance past him now. He could get out of the car and move forward, but what then? He wasn't quite sure what to do. He only knew one thing, though, that he wanted his son to be safe. He looked to make sure Henry was still on the line. Henry, I want you to listen to me. Henry? I'm here, Dad. Henry sounded out of breath. Now listen, son. What you have to understand is that there are protocols in place for uh, an emergency. Clifford rubbed his face with his right hand and sighed. <sighs> Chemical spills, fires, stuff like that. Protocols? Henry said, barely audible. He sounded a million miles away. Clifford adjusted in his seat, trying to get the phone closer to his ear, hoping that his son would understand him. I want you to get everyone into the control tower. I want you to get into my office. On my desk, there is a red binder. I don't remember which page, but I think it's protocol 18, 19. Clifford heard a distant moaning sound. He glanced in his rear view. He saw nothing but empty cars and headlights. Um, there, there are procedures to lock everything down. Everyone will be safe until help comes. Son, do you understand? Yeah, uh, get, get to your office. I got it, Dad. Dad, it's some kind of virus, they think. Never mind that. I want you to go now. This is urgent. Get everyone safe. Clifford's eyes started to tear up. I love you, son. I'll always love you, and you were the best thing that ever happened to me. You're on your way here. Tell me you're coming. He could tell his son was getting frantic. He had to calm him and make sure that he didn't panic. Of course, of course. I'm going to get there now. I need you to keep safe until the boss gets there. You can do that for me, right, kiddo? You're my second in command, okay? There was a long pause. Yeah, I can do that. I love you too, Dad. A bloody hand slapped onto the driver's side window. The figure in the long coat had come back. It was a woman. Her bloodied mop of hair in her pale face. She screamed in an ear-splitting tone that made Clifford jump in his seat. Her eyes were not red like the others, but a sick-looking putrid yellow. Clifford was frozen in terror. The dead woman slammed her head into his window with full force, cracking the glass. Though the glass did not yet give way. One more blow and it would be in pieces. Clifford put his car into drive and floored it barely noticing that he was in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic anymore. He steered to the right, hoping that there was enough room on the shoulder of the freeway for him to escape. His engine roared to life as he slammed into the vehicle to his front right. He now had to put his Mercedes into reverse. He quickly glanced in the rear view. It was then that he saw that the dead woman's scream had alerted more of the dead people to his presence. Several of them were returning. Henry was shouting from the phone that had dropped under his seat. Clifford had no time to answer him. He backed up and he floored it. The crazed dead woman with yellow eyes jumped onto the hood of his car. There was something savage about her. She wasn't slow and lumbering like the others he had seen. She was agile. She seemed strong. She hissed at him as he found the shoulder. His car scraped the guardrail. On the other side of the guardrail was the Willoughby River, after a 50-foot drop. The dead woman clawed at the windshield with her bloodied fingers, her mouth wide open. It was as if she wanted to bite right through the glass. Clifford slammed on the brakes. The inertia caused her to fly forward off the car. Clifford hit the gas and ran over her. He heard a yelp and a snap. 
as he plowed down the bridge, scraping guardrail and other cars as he passed. He was now hitting the downward slope of the freeway. It was then that he noticed that there were cars ahead of him on the shoulder. In fact, there were more of those sickening dead people there, too. They were feasting on unseen things inside of the cars. He knew what that something was. He knew they were eating people. Clifford had two choices. Stop or keep going. He chose to keep going. He was going to ram the cars in front of him and he was going to get free. Clifford was going 88 miles per hour as he slammed into the mustard yellow sports car in front of him. He had achieved his freedom from the road. He was airborne. His Mercedes had climbed over the car and flew up into the air and over the guardrail. The car did a nosedive and plunged into the cold Willoughby River below and immediately began to sink. Water began pouring into his already cracked window and then from his vents. He was having trouble getting his bearings, struggling to get free of his seatbelt. He felt like an airplane pilot or an astronaut when everything goes snafu, but he didn't have the training that those people get when faced with certain doom. He only knew panic, but there was something that kept him from instantly losing it. He could faintly hear his son's voice yelling, but it was impossible to hear what he was saying over the sound of the water rushing in. Blood began rushing to his head as the car pointed nose first into the dark abyss below him. He was breathing hard, trying to take a deep breath to prepare for the flood, and that's when he saw her. He saw a black silhouette outside of his car. She was in the water with him, peeking down at him. She had somehow attached herself to the roof of the car and was staring at him inside the windshield. He could faintly see a halo of light around her head. Clifford Hubley then saw her let out a drowned shriek, bubbles pouring upward out of her mouth. It didn't matter that the river had muffled the sound. It still petrified Clifford to his very core. Her hand reached for him, pushing through the cracked windshield. The last thing he saw were her yellow glowing eyes. 2. Ghouls, the man on the news had said. That stuck with Henry. That's the word that kept rolling around in his head. Ghouls. His father had just told him to get everyone into the control tower. He had just told him that he loved him, and Henry knew that something awful had just happened to him. He had been yelling for his dad into his phone. Some of his co-workers in the break room had a look of concern. The others just wanted him to go somewhere else because they couldn't hear the damn news. Henry's knees were wobbly. He slid down the wall and onto the floor. He was lost. He didn't know what to do. Several people had attempted calls on their phones, and no one was having luck. It was an essay in frustration. Jenna, the cute girl that had been Henry's most recent object of affection, sidled up to him and sat, putting a tender hand on his shoulder. It looks like you're having some good luck with your phone. She had a strained smile on her cute face. Henry didn't look at her. Do you think I could borrow your phone to call my boyfriend? Henry slowly lifted his bullet smartphone to Jenna. She now had her prize and quickly rose to her feet and exited the room. The national news channel went to snow on the television. Several people gasped. Some groaned in annoyance, almost like this wasn't really happening, like it was some bad drama on primetime. Kenneth quickly started flipping channels. All they saw was static or station logos. Technical difficulties, please stand by. But Kenneth kept flipping... Everyone around him more and more nervous as there was nothing on. Finally, he saw a glimpse of programming, but he skipped it and had to go back. Everyone glared at him like they wanted to strangle him. Betty Mulroney appeared on the screen. It was the local Mulberry affiliate channel. Betty shuffled her stack of papers on the news desk. It's almost September, folks. And you know what that means. That's right. Founders Day. Tune in tomorrow morning and we'll tell you the best places to shop for seasonal items and prepare for the annual Mulberry Founders Day Parade. That's my favorite time of year, Betty, Trenton said, chuckling to himself like a Stepford newscaster. The promo ended and a commercial for some diet food plan appeared. Dewey sat up. What the hell, man? Is this some kind of a joke? He turned to look at Kenneth and then to Henry, who was still slumped on the floor. Do they not even know what's going on? Dewey stood up as if to address the entire room of 20-something people. Listen up! 
What if this is all some bullshit like War of the Worlds? Henry came to life. It's real, Dewey. Dewey looked down at him, sitting on the floor. Henry met his gaze. How do you know, man? This could be all some sensationalist bullshit. It could be mass-induced panic. Hell, I almost panicked looking at that fucking cartoon map. An old episode of Gomer Pyle began on screen. As the theme began to play, things never felt more surreal. Why is this channel working when none of the others are? A voice said from the back. I'm going home. I need to check on my family, someone else had said. Henry stood up and cleared his throat. He had to address them. His father was most likely dead, but he had told him exactly what to do. Um, uh, attention, my dad told me to get us into the control tower until all of this blows over. Everyone turned their attention to him. He said we could lock it down. We'll all be safe up there. Um, there's snacks. Screw this. I'm going home. I'm certainly not going to listen to some boss's boy, Kenneth said, now staring at him with a disdain he had kept in check until now. He threw the remote across the room and stormed out the door. People started following him as if class was now dismissed. He then noticed April sitting at one of the tables in the far corner. She was furiously texting with both thumbs on her smartphone. Please listen to me, Dewey, April. Let's all get to the tower. We'll wait and see what happens. Sure, and meanwhile our families are out there getting murdered. You can forget that, Dewey had said. He stared at Gomer Pyle on the television as it cut to commercial. It was Betty again, reminding them that the Founder's Day was fast approaching. Dewey's head dropped. He turned and exited the room. April, I need you to listen to me, okay? Henry stood next to her, fighting the urge to actually rest his hands on her shoulders. No, I'm not okay. I'm trying to reach Todd. He's not answering and it's freaking me out. I was going to tell him I got my period. I'm not pregnant. He won't be mad at me anymore. April locked eyes with Henry. He's okay, right? Henry sighed and closed his eyes tight. I don't know. It's pretty bad out there. Well, thanks a lot. April pushed him away. Why would you say that? I'm really freaking out here. Tears started to pour down her face. You just watch. He's going to drive up in his truck and pick me up. And you'll be sorry you said that because he's going to kick your ass. Henry ignored her threats. We've got to get to the tower. We're going to be okay. Just come with me, okay? He put his hand on her arm. She immediately pushed it off. I'm not going anywhere with you. Are you fucking crazy? She started toward the door and Henry followed. Didn't you see the news? There are dead people coming to life. They're biting people. They're ripping them the fuck apart. Your fucking married boyfriend is fucking dead. And soon you will be too if you don't come with me. Henry's voice got louder. They're spreading across the entire country. The world even. Everyone is gonna die. Now 30 something people were looking at him. It's the death tide and it's on its way. Why won't you fucking idiots listen to me? April grabbed one of her girlfriend co-workers and collapsed into her arms, a crying mess. Give it a rest, man. You're scaring people. Big Anthony said, the operator of Little Goose. Just cool it. We'll be okay if we all just calm down. Chillax, man. Henry locked eyes with the big man. They weren't listening to him. It was as if everyone was too scared to do anything. Perhaps they would be okay. Maybe the National Guard would show up just in time to save all of them. Maybe Kenneth would make it home to his family. Maybe everyone would instantly know what to do when death was imminent. Maybe everyone had a machine gun hidden in their pants. Or maybe, just maybe, they were all absolutely, positively fucked. All of these thoughts quickly ended when the beautiful Jenna shoved Henry's own phone into his abdomen and pushed him a foot backwards. Henry, blindsided, tried to quickly focus on her now that she was right in his face. Make this work! She had tears running down her cheeks. The once sexy eye makeup now streaked in vertical lines. Make this work. I have to call my mom. I have to know she's okay. Two giant hands clasped around her shoulders 
pulling her slowly away from Henry. Calm down, Princess. Big Anthony's voice calmed her instantly. We're going to get a hold of your mom. It's probably just the phone lines. He then turned to everyone in distance of his voice. We're going to contact all of our families. Once the phone lines come back online, we will all call our loved ones. Henry supposed it was the first time he had heard the big man speak this many words in his presence. In his calm and collected tone, everyone seemed to listen. Maybe they would be okay, Henry thought. Perhaps he should employ a similar demeanor to persuade them all. The alarm sounded. It didn't usually mean emergency, but the employees of the hub were so on edge that it startled each and every one of them. It meant that freight was directly on its way to the hub. Many of the employees traded glances. Was it business as usual? Did they actually need to do their jobs, or did this mean something else? They all filed outside, and Henry followed. The hub was a massive structure with many different doors. Each door had a purpose. One led to the ship dock for loading and offloading of freighter ships. Another led to the train docks, where several times a week a train would arrive with a payload of different needs and wants of Mulberry businesses to thrive. On the southern side was the courtyard. This is where the big goose crane would set the many storage units into nice organized stacks to then be opened and unloaded by many workers of the hub. They would drive forklifts and bring the many different pallets of items to the receiving area inside. They were there to be broken down and inventoried. Once counted, those boxes would be taken to their designated zones for whatever items were contained inside to then be distributed to the trucks. On this day, work was at a standstill. Word had traveled fast throughout the hub that something bad was happening in the rest of the world and then possibly happening miles away in their hometown of Mulberry. 3. Ernie and Anthony, the sole operators of the cranes, the two people that had kept the hub moving like a well-oiled machine, had left their posts. Anthony had taken the elevator to the bottom level, while Ernie stayed in the control tower. There was a tiny break room station just for them on their work level. They could take a moment away from their controls and stretch their legs and unwind while eating a snack or lunch and watch television, or go out to the observation deck overlooking the entire yard and catch a quick smoke break. Both Ernie and Anthony left their stations when the dock manager told them that something was up and they might want to call home. This alarmed Ernie. For him, every day of work was a smooth operation without interruption. Now, there had been a time when they had to wait, when the train got held up or a ship hadn't made it to dock when it was supposed to, but this was the first time that anyone had told them to stop what they were doing to call home. When Anthony saw the world map on the screen, he left to make a phone call, and then he never came back. Ernie now stood alone in the tiny room where he found himself watching an ancient episode of Gomer Pyle on the local Mulberry affiliate channel. There was nothing in the way of news to tell him what was going on. His heart was filled with a sick dread. That kind where you knew that nothing good was going to happen. It was like there was a brick in his stomach. Ernie hadn't tried to call home because he already knew there was no one to call. For his wife had taken a trip with her sister and mother and they were on a cruise. He would have to wait for her to call him. He hoped that she was safe. The ocean was probably the best place to be right now. But he wished she was right here next to him. He wished he could just hold her one last time. The dread he felt, he knew it was real. He wasn't fearing for his own life. He feared for hers. His sweet Sarah. When the alarm sounded, he knew it well. It meant there was a train on the way, and there was danger. The number 32 was still in mid-offload. Whatever train that was on its way was going to hit the number 32. Ernie ran to his control console and saw the monitor blinking the words, Danger imminent. Yeah, no shit, he said, flipping the goose to life as a long row of HD monitors blinked on at once. Ernie quickly plugged in his headset and called for help. Control tower to North Dock, we have a situation. A harsh pop sounded, hurting Ernie's ears. He cursed and pulled the headset away from his right ear for a moment. Jesus H, this is tower! Imminent danger, do you copy? Nothing but hiss could be heard. Ernie started to flip various switches up above him. 
the row of monitors switched from various angles of Big Goose to sections of the ground level of the hub. He noticed that a large group of people stood out on the train yard dock. Where the hell was the dock manager? He wondered. Ernie flipped channels on his comm and hailed his co-worker. Yo, Big Anthony, do you copy? Copy loud and clear. What the hell's going on down there, man? We got a situation here. Ernie looked at his perimeter monitor. It displayed a graphic of the various tracks surrounding the hub. He saw that there was a red blip headed right for them. Copy, what's up? I'll tell you what's up. There's a goddamn train coming, and it's going to slam right into us. Ernie was getting himself worked up, and he needed to stay calm. He told himself he was cool as a cucumber, and he was cool as ice. He didn't need to lose it right now, but that was exactly what he felt like was happening. Since Sarah had left him for a cruise, he promised her he would eat right, just like he had been doing under her tutelage. Sarah had helped him change his diet completely after his close call last year. Heart pain. She quickly jumped into action, cutting out all the fried foods and making him quit smoking. As soon as she left, he decided he would like some deep-fried catfish for dinner, maybe some fries, and then a couple of beers. For breakfast the next morning, he decided to skip his daily oatmeal for a giant egg burrito at Scramby's. He hadn't had a smoke in approximately 12 months, but somehow these lonely feelings he was having with Sarah gone made him weak, and he had the urge for a smoke so bad. He finally gave in. First he bummed one from Big Anthony. Anthony reluctantly obliged, but then Ernie bought a whole pack after work, and now he was smoking regularly again. He could quit by the time Sarah got home. She would be none the wiser. Cole, what's-his-face? Nathan, the dock manager, Big Anthony suggested. Yeah, no shit, that's the first goddamn thing I did. He ain't answering, man. A small twinge of pain hit him in his chest. He ignored it like he always did. It was probably his imagination anyway. After all this time, he'd been eating so healthily. His body certainly wouldn't fail him now in this time of need, would it? Ernie looked at the red blip on the screen. It was getting closer. Why was it going so damn fast? Ernie adjusted his mic closer to his mouth, as if this would help Anthony hear him any better. Anthony, do we have time to move it? He waited for a reply, his breathing becoming labored, the flop sweat on his brow rolling down the sides of his temples. How close? Ernie tried like hell to estimate this, but he had no clue. His mind was running too many scenarios at once. To hell with it! Ernie gripped his two joysticks and placed his feet on foot pedals, and the loud whir sound of Big Goose's hydraulics fired up. How close? Do you copy? Anthony chirped in his ear. No time! Get those damn people out of there! On Ernie's row of monitors, he had multiple views of Big Goose's claws. They were slowly lowering down towards Train 32. Whoa, what are you doing, Ernie? Anthony said on the comm. What does it look like, man? I'm going to get that damn train out of the way. Engine 32 had been sitting since early morning when the sun was still down. It had just delivered a full train of storage units filled to capacity. It was supposed to be unloaded one unit at a time, but this day had been different. Panic causes a lot of distractions and can be a real bitch when it comes to an efficient workload. Above the train was a gigantic electronic display board. Its job was to tell the employees what shipment had arrived and where each one was supposed to go. Right now, the display blinked yellow with the word, CAUTION. The group of onlookers' faces cascaded in the yellow light, waiting there to see what was coming. Big Anthony had just asked Ernie what the hell he was doing when he saw the goose's giant claws head straight down for the train. There were too many people in the way, and there were protocols in place to prevent employee accidents. Everyone off the deck until Goose was done. That was the mantra they had been taught. Safety first. Everyone get the hell out of the way. Several of the onlookers had finally now just seen Big Goose's claw lowering. People started to slowly back away. Everybody get back! Big Anthony said, grabbing at people by their shirts and pulling them back. We've got an emergency here! Train coming! On any other day, people might have stayed inside. They would have stuck to their posts, but today had been different. 
Word had gotten around to everyone that people were dying, that the phone service was spotty. People were having trouble getting their loved ones on the line. It was too much to keep people at their posts. People wanted answers. And now people were getting word of the boss, Mr. Hubley, Henry's dad, was nowhere to be found. The ones that saw Henry freaking out had immediately told someone else, and so on, that things didn't look good. If any of this insanity was true, who cared about the job? Who cared about safety measures? Maybe the train that's coming was on its way to help them. Get back! Big Anthony yelled. Big Goose's giant claw came down hard on Engine 32. The loud clang that it made was deafening to the denizens of the dock. People covered their ears, everyone trying to back away fast enough to avoid sparks. Big Goose's claws squeezed the train engine. The crushing metal made a horrible whining sound. Henry was way in the back towards the doorway watching. He was racking his brain asking it what to do, and it wasn't answering. He was frozen in place. His father had asked him to get everyone to the tower and to execute Protocol 19, whatever the hell that was. He tried to get them to follow him. He had failed. He just looked like that same dumb kid to them, didn't he? He knew he should probably get to the tower, but now there was talk of a train coming. What if it was help? What if it was a special armored train full of soldiers ready to protect them? He had no evidence to back this up. He was merely theorizing that they weren't totally screwed. He could see them, the co-workers, watching as Big Goose's hydraulic crane lifted the train. Some people ran past him back into the warehouse and straight out the exit, heading towards the parking lot. No doubt Dewey was already gone. Maybe he was the smart one, Henry pondered. Henry stood and stared at each of them. So many people he had seen day in and day out. People he tried to take the time to say hello to. People that he knew never respected him. He was the boss's son. It only bothered him some of the time. He tried not to care. In fact, his father had always told him that they were probably intimidated by him. He knew this was complete bullshit. He was the kid that could get away with anything. He would always have a job here. They probably even thought he was a rat, ready to tattle on them for taking too long a break, for sitting on the job. The truth was that he didn't care about any of that. He tried to get out of work more than any of them combined. All he really wanted was for someone to be his friend, to be his buddy, to talk to him, to listen. Now on this day, the day he really needed someone to listen to him, they wouldn't hear it. To hell with them, Henry thought. A scowl grew across his face. If they wouldn't listen, then screw them. Let that armored train of soldiers save them. I'll be upstairs in the tower. Henry headed back inside. He passed by the empty workstations. He stepped over cardboard boxes and around wooden crates and headed to his locker. He ignored the screams and panic and went about his task. He entered his combination into his locker and opened it and grabbed his backpack. He unzipped it to make sure his laptop and tablet were inside. He zipped up his pack and slung it from his right shoulder and then glanced into the break room one last time and saw now that the old sitcom Alice was on the television. He headed down the hallway back into the main room and approached the secured entrance hall that led to the service elevator in the center of the room. It was as if the elevator was the base of a wheel and the hallway was a spoke that led to the tower. Henry stood in front of a big armored door with a single hatch next to the door latch. The hatch was for quickly getting important papers inside. Then a gopher on the other side of the door would send them upstairs to the boss. Today there was no one manning that post. Henry pulled his ID card from his Velcro wallet and waved it next to the protruding black disc next to the door. A clunk sound could be heard a moment later and the door opened. Henry headed past the gopher desk as the door slammed behind him. He glanced at several walled monitors that gave glimpses to the outside of the door. There was still a half-eaten sandwich on the desk and an open thermos of what smelled like chicken soup. Henry walked to the control panel on the right side of the elevator doors. There was a touch screen. He tapped the screen and a code prompt popped up. He carefully typed in his number the number that his dad gave him long ago in case of an emergency, a code that his dad swore that he better not ever use. There would have to be terrorists attacking the hub. 
Maybe, and only then would he be allowed to type in this code. Henry laughed when his dad said that. He pictured Hans Gruber from the film Die Hard infiltrating the hub with his cronies. None of that mattered now. His dad was most likely dead, and he had all the reason in the world to get up to that tower. He tapped in his code using his index finger. 1138. The doors opened and Henry stepped inside. Labeled on the keypad were several options in front of him. Control tower. Office. Apartment. Henry tapped office and the doors closed. 4. Big Anthony crossed his fingers as he watched Big Goose start to lift engine 32 off the tracks and into the air. It lifted up and pulled at the other train cars that it was still attached to. Anthony winced as if he was in pain, watching as the train slowly started to pull at the other train cars that weighed tons as if they were children's toys. He quickly glanced around. There were still a dozen or so gawkers on the platform, while the rest were heading back inside. That was when they all heard the horn. The train was coming. Back in the tower, all Ernie could tell was that the train was most likely on top of them. He only took a split second to glance at the monitor. It showed that the red blip was right on top of the hub. If it wasn't here yet, it would be in a split second. He had to act fast. He quickly slammed the right stick down and the left stick up. His left arm had jerked in pain. He winced and saw on the monitors that he had just made too quick a move. The train had spun violently, pulling at the other cars. Engine 32 had now detached from the other cars. There would be no pulling it out of the way now. No, goddammit! Ernie pounded his left leg, trying to get feeling back into his arm. He then heard the approaching train horn, and a sick dread filled his stomach, and his chest began to tighten. Big Anthony saw as Engine 32 took a violent spin to the right, pulling free of the towed train cars. There was a loud thud as the first three cars that were being lifted in the air crashed to the tracks, falling haphazardly and exploding with debris. People now caught on that it was time to run. Now Big Anthony saw the approaching train, and it was going fast. He could see that it was not a freight train at all, but a passenger train. A passenger train from where? He had no idea, but it was coming nonetheless. Anthony had no idea how to switch tracks. It wasn't his job. He knew by now that the jackass dock manager, whose job it was, was probably on his way home. He probably took off at the first sign of trouble, but Anthony couldn't blame him. Anthony ran towards the control shack that was a small metal structure just to the right of the tracks. It would no doubt have some sort of track control. People screamed and ran in his direction, but he ran past them towards the train that would no doubt be slammed to him in any second. Big Anthony looked at the small slanted panel with a hope that he could do something. He quickly scanned the labels on the controls. He saw a glimpse of the word track switch. That was it. That was what he needed. He quickly started punching buttons waiting for a reaction. Nothing. He pounded it with his fist when he noticed a keyhole. It needed a key. Anthony took a moment to curse the man that had abandoned his post and had doomed them all. The Triton Express was the name of the passenger train. Anthony had actually ridden it before when he and his buddies decided to check out the casinos in Bossier City. He had a hell of a time with his childhood friends. He had lost a ton of money, though. But when he thought of that trip, it made him smile many times. But not on this day. Anthony stood helplessly as the Triton plowed into Engine 32's caboose and kept going. A cacophony of mayhem ensued, propelling train parts in every direction. People that weren't hit by debris were wiped off their feet by entire train cars sliding in a sparkling shower of terror. Big Anthony was there as the Triton's passenger cars began to jackknife behind it. They flew off the track in a spectacular display of force, erasing the control shack from existence, and Big Anthony was gone. The passenger car that took out the control shack slid for 20 feet in a shower of sparks. It slammed into the wall of the hub and broke apart, spilling passengers from the inside onto the rail yard dock. The passengers laid still for only a moment, and then they rose to their feet and shambled aimlessly in no particular direction. 
These people were already dead, and they had already risen. They were the dead ones. The train had left devastation in its wake, crashing into storage containers, spilling freight in every direction, crushing human bodies that had not escaped the dock in time. The northeast side of the hub wall had been damaged beyond repair with a giant hole now in its side. Smoke and debris filled the lungs of hub survivors. People coughed and cried as they pushed broken metal and splintered wood off of themselves. When the crash had ended and things fell silent, mangled bodies with broken bones rose up from the ground and shuffled towards the first noise that they heard. It was a woman's scream. It was April's scream. April's face, crusted with tear-soaked dust, saw them, and she knew what they were, but she couldn't run. Her leg had been crushed beneath debris. April's cries lowered to a whimper as she locked eyes on the red-eyed man heading towards her. It was a tall, thin man in a baggy sports suit wearing a blank stare on his face. Her fear and panic transformed into a trance-like state as the dead man met eyes with her and then sank his teeth into her shoulder. 5. The elevator doors opened to a lovely ding sound and revealed Clifford Hubley's sky office. Henry walked in. He hadn't actually been up here in a long time. He always thought it seemed rather sterile and cold, but now it actually felt inviting. The office was basically a big round room, with a wall right in the center that hid a spiral staircase leading up to Clifford's apartment. The office had a breathtaking view of the hub. Clifford needed to see every side of the hub and often marveled at its size and enjoyed watching the goose cranes in action. But his job up here ended up mostly being about paperwork and phone calls and constant worry. The novelty of a sky-high office soon faded and it was back to the grindstone. Henry glanced around and took note of the 100-inch plasma screen in front of his father's desk with three monitors on either side, a total of seven screens in all displaying the carnage downstairs. Henry covered his mouth, not realizing that the sound he had heard in the elevator equaled the devastation he now saw on the screens in front of him. He took a step closer to the screens. Monitor one on the left, he could see the dead people on all fours on the ground. They seemed to be feasting on the recent living. On monitor two, Henry could see the break room. It was Kenneth! He was trying to push several of them away with a chair. He looked like a lion tamer without a whip. Monitor 3 was the parking lot. It was a moving camera that slowly panned from left to right. Here Henry could see that the parking lot was infested with the deadies. He could even see the green Chevy truck that Dewey drove for all the years that he knew him was crashed into one of the many light poles in the lot. Before Henry could make it out if Dewey was alive or dead, the camera panned away. The 100-inch plasma in the center gave Henry a perfect view of the train yard. What he saw was a top-down view of the devastation. Henry's heart began to race, his face flushed with panic. The hub had been invaded. There was no help on the way. That train had brought nothing but doom. Henry looked away, but he looked up once again, long enough to see what he was sure to be April, on her back with a dead stare across her bloodied face. A figure hunched over her. Henry backed up into his father's desk and glanced down to see a yellow square with a black stick. He pushed the stick down and the camera on the screen showing April panned away. Too much. He wanted to cry, but he couldn't. Not yet. He had to lock it down. Why bother, he thought. Everyone is dead. I failed. Henry said to himself. Henry walked around his father's massive desk and sat into his leather office chair. He leaned forward on his elbows and covered his face with his hands. I think they're all dead. He looked at the monitors once more. Why didn't you listen to me? Sitting in front of him on his father's desk was a large flat screen monitor displaying a cartoon version of Big Goose picking up and setting down boxes. Henry wiggled the computer mouse and the main desktop popped up on screen. The desk was piled with stacks of manila folders and assorted office supplies. 
a caddy holding pens and paper clips, and a stapler, and one of those cheesy perpetual motion ball ornaments that Henry had gifted to him. There was one large brown paper wrapped package right in the center of the desk. Henry clicked on the search bar at the bottom of the screen and typed in Protocol 19. A tiny blue spinning icon appeared. It was a little gymnast doing flips, indicating it was searching. No items match your search. The monitor displayed in all caps. He stood up and shoved the package off the desk, which in turn pushed all the pens and staples and the ornament on the floor. Protocol 19 or was it 18? He shouted. A whirring sounded behind him. He turned around to see what he originally thought to be a shelf had opened up offering him a touch-sensitive tablet. It slid out all the way from the wall. A female voice spoke. Protocol 19. Chemical spill? Terrorist threat. Weather disaster. Take action. Lockdown tower. Send distress signal. Seal all exits. Henry turned around looking for the origin point of the voice. Would you like to proceed? Henry was still dumbfounded. He scratched his head looking for a face to meet him, to make some sort of visual connection. Voice activation needed. Can you respond? The female voice said. Um, Henry said. Uh, Henry said. Voice identified. Henry Peter Hubley. Permissions granted by acting manager Clifford William Hubley. Now deceased. The cold voice had said. How do you... How do you know he's dead? Henry asked. Tears began to well in his eyes, hearing the name of his father. Acting manager, Clifford William Hubley. Pulse has ceased. A sound like beads on an abacus could be heard. 24 minutes and 17 seconds ago. Henry felt like his heart was in his throat. He knew he was most probably dead. But now to have an actual confirmation was painful. Henry Peter Hubley. Permissions granted. Activate protocol 19. Henry knew what he had to do. He had to lock down the tower. Maybe he would keep those things from getting up here. Maybe he would be safe. For a while. Maybe he could survive here until the army or the marines or the national guard or whoever fought their way back to him. Showed up. Henry was just about to respond when he heard the crackle of a speaker come to life on the monitor wall. At first he heard heavy breathing, and then he heard a voice. Hey! Hey, down here! Henry scanned each monitor until he saw on monitor 7, it was Kenneth. He stared straight up at the camera. Henry felt like he could see him where he stood. Hey, please please tell me someone's up there! You gotta let me up there! Henry could hear the loud thuds behind Kenneth. He saw Kenneth turn towards the door. It was the door with the hatch. Kenneth was in the secured hallway that led to the tower elevator. Kenneth, can you hear me? Henry said. He then saw the comm button on his dad's desk and felt foolish. He then pressed the button. Kenneth, it's it's me, Henry. Kenneth's head snapped back facing the monitor. Henry, thank God. Kenneth repeatedly tapped the elevator button, but nothing was happening. The elevator's not working. Can you help me? I'll give you the code. It's 1138 and then pound. Henry now noticed that Kenneth had blood dripping down his arm. His eyes widened. Hang on a sec. Have you been bitten? Kenneth started punching in the numbers. Henry mashed the comm button down harder. Kenneth, have you been bit? Henry could see now in monitor six that Kenneth had stepped onto the elevator. He could see that Kenneth was favoring his right arm, his hand now bloody. Hold that elevator! Computer, or whatever you are, are you there? Protocol 19, do you wish to engage? Awaiting response. Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. Henry saw the doors close on the elevator. If he's been bit and he's coming up here, then it's all over. He said out loud, trying to convince himself. Stop the elevator now! Kenneth stared up at the camera. Henry could swear he was smiling. Was he imagining that? Computer, do you hear me? 
Protocol 19, do you wish to engage? Awaiting response. Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. The female voice repeated. Henry had no idea where the elevator was between the bottom floor and his floor. His brow felt cool as it moistened with panic. He looked at the doors, expecting it to pop open with a dead walking Kenneth storming in and ripping his throat out. Engage protocol 19 now. A red light began blinking above the office door. Henry could see the glow of a red light from outside the panoramic window on all sides until his outside view instantly disappeared when metal shutters sealed shut. He heard a loud clunk and then another and another, each one sounding further and further away as if hundreds of bank vaults were being sealed shut. With wide eyes, he stared at the monitor waiting to see what would happen. The elevator stopped in its place. Kenneth looked confused. His blood-stained hands smeared across the elevator walls as he searched for the comm button. Kenneth pressed the button. His labored breathing could be heard. Henry, the elevator stopped! Ken gulped. Let me come up, I'm bleeding! Kenneth banged on the doors with his bloody fist. Help me, Henry! Henry took a deep breath and pressed the comm button. Kenneth, you've been bit. I can't let you in. He saw Kenneth process what he had said, and then Kenneth looked up at the camera. Let me in, you goddamn piece of shit! Kenneth kicked the door with his foot, losing balance. He looked like he was drunk or on something. I ain't bit at all. I'm just hurt. He paused for a moment, staring at the door ahead of him. I cut myself shaving, he said, and then slowly turned up to the camera and then began laughing wildly. Get it? He said. I cut myself shaving. He laughed maniacally for a bit and then slowed down out of breath. Henry stood speechless. He couldn't process why Kenneth was acting like this. Was this the result of the bite? He had been bitten, hadn't he? Open the goddamn door, Kenneth said. He kicked the door harder now, again and again and again, till out of steam, he slid down the wall to his side. I ain't bit. Quiet now, he lay still without a sound. Henry decided to speak. Kenneth, are you still with me? He cleared his throat. Are you still alive, I mean? Yeah, that makes sense, dumbass. How's he going to answer me if he's dead? I'm still here, he finally said. Barely. He stayed slumped on his side. Tell me the truth. Have you been bitten? Henry asked. There was a long moment with no sound. Henry could still hear the Protocol 19 alarm in the distance, but it was dying down, lowering in volume, and finally stopped. Kenneth, have you been bitten? Henry squinted while staring at the monitor, his eyes watering, too afraid to blink. I was bit. Am I screwed? Kenneth said without moving. Henry wasn't sure how to respond. Should he be frank or beat around the bush? If he was bit, from what Henry had heard on the news, he would be one of those things very soon. I am, aren't I? I'm afraid so, Kenneth. Henry took a huge gulp, swallowing spit. I'm sorry. Henry heard a soft chuckle, and then it changed into a laugh. Kenneth sat up and looked at the camera. At Henry. <laughs> what are you sorry about, daddy's boy? He climbed to his feet in a strange rhythm, not quite inebriated, but possessed. You got the whole world now. You're king of the castle, aren't you, daddy's boy? Henry's face turned to puzzlement. Why the hell is he attacking me? What the hell did I ever do? Henry hesitated, but then hit the calm button. I don't know what you mean, but I'm sorry you got bit. Henry looked for words, but he couldn't find them. It, um, sucks. Kenneth began laughing again. That insane laughter. It began to hurt Henry's being. It was disturbing. 
Henry slowly pulled his hand away from the calm and looked for a volume knob. Then the laughter stopped, and Kenneth fell to the floor with a thud. The entire tower had settled with a loud clunk, and all was quiet. Henry stood transfixed on the monitor. Is he dead? Henry wondered. He knew he shouldn't even try. Just let it go. The guy has been bit, and he's going to turn, flip off that monitor, and never look at it again. He's going to change soon, and you don't want to see it, Henry. But Henry didn't move. He didn't walk forward, and he didn't turn the monitor off. He stood, and he stared. A grunt. The body of Kenneth began to stir. He was dead, all right. There was no way that Kenneth was alive with the color gray his skin had now become. He was dead, but he was moving and he was grunting, rising from the floor of the elevator. He stood and swayed, his skin so pale, so sickly, with traces of blood that had splattered on his face, now emphasized by the lack of color. The dead man turned around, slowly looking for a place to shuffle towards, but there was nowhere to go. He was in a box. Henry couldn't look away, even though everything in his being told him to. He knew he should just turn the monitor off and be done with it. Just forget about him. He's gone. But Henry knew he was going to be forever uneasy knowing that dead Kenneth was down there, feet below him, trapped in a box trying to get out, to get to him and rip his throat out. Shut up, Henry! Jesus! He said out loud. Dead Kenneth stopped swaying and then turned and slowly looked up at the camera. His eyes red, a bright red. Are those... Are his eyes glowing? Henry felt an uneasiness. He felt like he was going to be sick. He could swear that Kenneth was saying something. He could see his lips moving. But what was he saying? Dead Kenneth apparently didn't think to push the comm button to let Henry in on the message. But Henry knew what he was saying. He knew it, but he didn't want to hear it. In fact, he never wanted to know. But it was obvious that Kenneth was trying to form the words to his name. Henry! 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 Henry stepped forward with purpose and felt along the side of the monitor and turned it off. He let out a sigh of relief. He would now begin a process of trying to forget that that thing existed down there. But he would always know where he was. He would hear the phantom thuds, wondering if that was him. Will he find his way free? Is he coming to get me? Henry would wonder that for a long time. 6. Henry stood in front of the monitors. He glanced at each one each monitor showing him different areas of the hub and just how awful it was. The dead walked, and they were everywhere, all over the hub. Each time a camera changed to another station, there were more of them shuffling about. Henry didn't want to think about it. He didn't even want to look at them. He thought he might recognize his co-workers, people like Jenna and April. He didn't want to know. He walked over to his father's desk and found his tablet remote control. He tapped the touchscreen to flip channels. There was snow on every channel until he found the Mulberry local affiliate, KNIM. He saw it was the familiar face of Fonzie. Happy Days was on. He made sure then to change each monitor to Happy Days. He wanted to tune it all out. He didn't want to see another walking dead body. Not now, not ever. Henry walked through the doorway behind his father's desk that led to the conference room. There was a big round table with a conference speakerphone right in the center. Henry noticed the number of chairs and wondered if his dad had ever even used this place for a conference. He must have, he reckoned, but the place looked so untouched to him. On the right side of the room was a wall with a wet bar and a tiny fridge and a sink. Henry continued to the left side of the room towards the spiral staircase that led to the private quarters, the apartment where his dad had stayed on so many nights when Henry was home alone. With the shutters closed in the tower, the conference room was very dark and it made Henry uneasy. When he made a first step on the staircase, 
The step lit up with a faint glow. With each step Henry took, another step lit up. This tiny little detail took Henry away from the fear for a moment and made him crack a faint smile. Halfway up, he looked down to see the first step dim and then go dark, and then the next step and the next. Henry made sure to quicken his pace to beat the stair lights, if that was even possible. There was something about them that was comforting, and he needed all the comfort he could get. Henry had been to the apartment before when he was much younger, but he hadn't since. It became that place for him to detest, because it was his dad's home away from home. It was the place that kept his father away from him. There was a time when Henry even thought that his dad would rather be here than with him at home. It wasn't until he was older that he began to realize that his dad was just a very busy man with a lot of responsibility. He was glad that he got closer to him in these past few years. It wasn't that close. At least he had some good memories. He arrived at the top step, and as soon as he took a step forward from the corner of the room, it lit. He could get used to this automatic lighting stuff. He took a survey of the room. It was the living room of the apartment, and it was very nice. A plush carpet, a giant plasma on the wall with in-wall speakers, a comfortable-looking reclining chair and a sofa, a glass coffee table and framed art, it looked like those mass-produced French-style magazine ads blown up into wall art. It was very cozy. He noticed that the ceiling was sloped down. In fact, the entire apartment was a big domed circle. Next to the living room was a dining room, and that led to a kitchen. Right in the middle was a hallway that led to a master bedroom. Henry entered and was instantly hit with the scent of his father. That smell of his cologne that he always wore. What was the name? He wondered. Blue Ocean or something like that? He was sure he would know if he looked in the bathroom. It would be on the counter next to his shaving cream and deodorant. In the bedroom was what looked to be a freshly made bed. Henry wondered if his dad made it or did a maid come all the way up here and do it for him. The question passed when he was startled by his reflection. A mirrored wall that slid open to reveal a walk-in closet. He slid it open just to see, and sure enough, it was filled with his dad's clothes. Rows of suits and shelves with button-down shirts and plenty of unopened socks and underwear packs. Henry realized that he had no clothes with him at all, just what he wore on his back. But it didn't matter, he guessed. No one would be here to see him try to fit into his father's clothes. He turned around and walked into the bathroom. There was a stand-up shower and a double sink for some reason. Maybe just to be fancy? There was a first aid kit on the wall next to the medicine cabinet. Henry opened it. He didn't know why. Maybe he was just taking a mental inventory of stuff that he had, but there was nothing in the cabinet but what looked to be a lifetime supply of Q-tips and dental floss and toothpaste, and the drawers were hundreds of toothbrushes and a single pair of fingernail clippers. There was another door in the bathroom. He opened the door to a pantry of towels, and next to it a micro over-under washer and dryer and a fold-down ironing board. Henry did nothing for a moment. He then slowly leaned against the pantry wall and slid to the floor. There was hardly a clue as to who lived in this place. Did his dad even have pictures somewhere? Maybe on his hard drive? Stop! He crawled to his feet. He caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror and sighed. A small blue light blinked on the wall next to the sink, and then he heard that female voice again. Status check! Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. Henry waited for it to continue, but there was silence. He then caught on that he needed to respond. Um, okay, go ahead and tell me. Protocol 19 lockdown. 85% successful. Lockdown could not be completed 100%. Henry stared at the blue light as if it was peering at him. Why not 100? Henry truly would like to know if he was in danger. Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. Cataclysm caused breach in southeast wall of hub. Impossible to seal. All exits failed to seal. Lockdown failure. Henry leaned against the wall, feeling uneasy. Am I safe up here? I mean, can... Can those things get to me here? There was a long pause. 
Henry swore he heard that sound again. It sounded like beads being slid up and down on an old-fashioned abacus. Negative. Hostiles cannot reach tower. Hostile trapped in elevator. No threat perceived. Control tower lockdown successful. Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. No threat imminent. Henry sighed with relief and then chuckled to himself. That lady's voice kept calling him Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. It reminded him of the old Warner Brothers cartoon. I am Elma J. Fudd, millionaire. I own a mansion and a yacht. His amusement quickly waned, and he wanted answers to so many things. He now knew he was safe up here. No threat imminent, it had said. Say, what's its name anyway? Hey, um, what are you? What is your name? What do I call you? He found himself staring at the blue light in the bathroom once again. Response. I am Proto. Created by Bubenstein Laboratories. Programmed to serve. Henry Peter Hubley, acting manager. I own a mansion and a yacht, Henry said. Reference. The abacus sounded again. 1955 Warner Brothers animated short. Hairbrush featuring Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Henry laughed. Wow, now you're just showing off. Big deal, so you have Google search. The blue light clicked off. Oops, did I just hurt its feelings? Henry walked out of the bathroom and suddenly the queen-size bed seemed very inviting. It was still early in the day, but with the shutters closed, it could have been the middle of the night for all he knew. The room was still low lit, so he sat on the edge of the bed and leaned over, taking his backpack off and leaning it against the nightstand. He moved his hands towards the chrome lamp, and before he could touch it, it lit. Next to the lamp was a gold medal framed picture of his family, not just he and his dad, but also of his mother. They were outdoors in the photo, all three smiling. Henry looked very young. He had a Cookie Monster t-shirt on, and his mom had her arms wrapped around him. His dad had his arms wrapped around her. Damn, we look really happy. He found himself holding the picture, leaning back on the bed, laying his head on the pillow. He held the picture over him. He could see his own reflection in the glass. He then saw the faint sparkle of light form next to his eye, the lights hitting his tears just right. The events of this short day had taken their toll. He hugged the frame to his chest and closed his eyes and eventually drifted off to sleep. End of chapter. Dead Ahead. Written and narrated by Jason Wallstrom. Music by Terry Wallstrom. Visit nimpodcast.blogspot.com Contact me at nimpodcast at gmail.com The story continues.
is podcasting.